Thank you, Pastor Joey. Please turn to Psalm chapter 127. Psalm 127. Is anyone here into video games? I think all the kids left. So um, when I was a child, the Cadillac of video game systems was the Nintendo 64. But unfortunately, I did not own my own Nintendo 64, but I did have a friend who did. And so I would frequent his house, and our go-to game was Mario Kart. Any of you guys like Mario Kart? I, what was so uh, exciting about Mario Kart when I was a kid was that you could play multiplayer. So you could have four people playing at once on the same screen. And it worked out perfectly because it was me, my buddy, his brother, and his older sister. And we'd play for hours. But there was one small problem to our paradise, and that was a little sister. When she got news that we were playing, she'd toddle in and she would want to play too. But we tried to explain to her that, that she couldn't play with the controls. It was too big for her and there weren't enough people to play. And, but she wouldn't listen to reason. So she would tell mom and, and then we'd get in trouble and then none of us could play Mario Kart. And so we tried to have some kind of compromise. We would rotate her in, but she still didn't really understand the controls. And to make matters worse, she always wanted to be Yoshi, and Yoshi was my character, and one of us always had to sit out. So that was just a problem until we finally came up with the ultimate solution. Perhaps you've heard of it before. It goes by several names, but I know of it as the Phantom Controller. <laughs> so what you do is you go to the cupboard into the cabinet, and you pull out a fifth controller. It didn't even have to be to the same system. But you hand it to the little girl, and then you plug it into the invisible fifth port. You tell her that she's Yoshi at the top right corner, and for hours she would sit there contentedly thumbing away, thinking that she's controlling Yoshi, when in reality I'm the one behind the controls. And that worked for quite a while until finally, to all our dismay, she realized that she wasn't in control. When was that for you? When was that moment in your life when you realized that you're not in control. You've worked for the same company for 25 years, but instead of a party, they show you the door. And all of a sudden, you're standing there in the parking lot of the only business you've ever known, clutching a box filled with the office supplies from your old desk, and it hits you like a freight train that you're not in control. You try to take care of yourself, you, you, you eat well, you exercise daily, but, but a persistent pain in your back sends you to the family doctor who then runs some tests, and it's cancer. And as you sit there in that dark room looking at the x-ray of your spine on the other wall, it hits you that you're not in control. Or maybe you've always dreamed of a child ever since your first childhood doll. And as newlyweds, you and your husband imagine starting a family. But the days roll into weeks, roll into months, turn into years, and the nursery's still empty. And, and through pain, you realize that you're not in control. When was that time for you? In Psalm 127, we are confronted with the reality that we are not in control. And while this revelation is a frightening prospect, the author's intention here is not to frighten, but to comfort 
For what we learn is that while our lives are out of, in, out of our control, they are never out of His. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Will you pray with me? God, I ask that you would surround us with your care as we wrestle with the reality that we're not in control. May we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. One quick literary note before we continue. Um, if you've ever spent any time in the Psalms, you may have noticed that this one has a slightly different feel than most of them. Uh, it doesn't sound like the psalms that would appear in your hymn book or the ones that we would sing. And that's because this psalm actually acts more like a proverb. And it makes sense when you look at the author, right? Solomon is, I mean, his wheelhouse is the proverbs. And that's why it has a strong kind of proverbial flavor to it. So if most of the psalms that we sing shine brightest on Sundays in the hymns and in the songs and in the prayers, I think that psalms like these, like 127, shines brightest on Mondays, showing up in the trenches of life when knowledge is applied. This is a wisdom psalm, and the driving theme of this wisdom psalm is God's sovereign control, a control that shows up in four specific areas. First, in his sovereignty, God gives us success. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Solomon begins on the job site of a building project, and there in his hard hat, he highlights the builder's utter dependence on God for the project's success. It doesn't matter how thoughtful the plans, thorough the preparations, or skillful the construction. If the Lord's not in it, their toil and their efforts are futile. But this proverb isn't just for the construction workers among us. And this is where it's actually helpful to recognize a literary device that is unique to a proverb or a proverbial psalm. And that is that they have the tendency to use particularities to describe universalities. And we know this intuitively, right? Don't cry over spilt milk. The early bird gets the worm. Strike while the iron's hot. These proverbs are not merely about worms, milk, and irons. They're specific cases with general application. And so here in the opening verse of Psalm 127, the particularity of God's hand in the success of a housing construction can legitimately be generalized to include his hand in each of our unique endeavors and activities. Unless the Lord's in it, our efforts are vain. And this is a reality, a spiritual reality that is worth reminding ourselves of because it is one that we are so prone to forget. We're Americans, after all, right? We pride ourselves on independence. We penned a declaration about it. Furthermore, we live in a culture that places an inordinate value on personal achievement and success, a value that's drilled into us from our earliest years. But here we're reminded that no matter how many degrees we earn, how many projects we complete or awards we receive, we never grow out of our dependence on God. 
Have any of you seen that old uh, game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? That was a big thing because it was like the first game show where you could actually earn a million dollars, win a million dollars at the, at, the, at the game show. And you sit there by yourself in that chair if you're the contestant that's picked, and you have to, ask a, you have to answer a series of multiple choice questions, the $100 question, 200 500 all the way up to a million. And the questions get progressively harder as you go forward. So you try to work your way up through the thousands. And then if you're stuck, you can use a lifeline. 50-50, ask the audience, phone a friend. And I think in an affluent kind of society, an independent culture like ours, we can view our relationship with God kind of like that contestant at Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. We can work through the $100, the $200, even the 1000 if we really stop and think about it. But we kind of save those lifelines till we get up into like the $10,000 questions. Then we phone a friend, right? Then we call for help. We can work on, we can handle, we can manage the, the, the smaller things, and we just kind of save the lifelines as something of a last resort. But that mentality reveals, I believe, an inflated view of our control and a diminished view of God's. Jesus tells us in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do some things. Is that what your Bible says? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. For as Paul says in Acts 17, in him is life and breath and everything else. Solomon wants to cure us of the delusion of self-sufficiency. And I, keep, I think this keeps us from kind of the dual dangers of conceit and despair. It guards us from conceit when our plans succeed, right? Keeps us from strutting out there like King Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power? Instead, we realize that it's God who built the house. It's he who gets the credit and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the hard way. Solomon is telling us here in Psalm 127. But it also guards us from despair when our plans fail. For we affirm that even in our failures, God's still in control. He's still seated on his throne. He's not pacing, wringing his hands, wondering what now. Psalm 127 warns us never to lose sight of our dependence. For unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But as we continue, the setting moves from a house to a city. And here we see the second arena in which God shows his sovereign control. In his sovereignty, God gives us security. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. A watchman had a weighty responsibility in that time of keeping the city safe and secure. His charge was to watch from the city walls for any approaching threat. So while the city worked, he watched. While the city played, he watched. While the city dined, while the city slept, he watched. Watching over the safety of the city that he loved. But here Solomon admits that unless the Lord is watching, the watchmen stay awake for nothing. For ultimately, he's the one who provides safety and security for the city. Do you believe that God is watching out for you? That he is watching out for the ones that you love? We live in a dangerous world, a world that is bad and a world that is broken, earthquakes that bury cities, 
people that intimidate, manipulate, devastate, and oppress. It is enough to cause us to collapse into a paralyzing fear if it's up to us, if we're the ones in control. But thankfully, mercifully, we're not. For we have a divine watchman who's guarding this city. I think of my four kids, and in this season of their lives, they're still living under my roof, and so I feel like I can have some measure of oversight and protection from all the crazy. But as, as the months roll by, I'm, I'm beginning to notice that they're growing older. And with that, I'm realizing that soon they will be out on their own, beyond my sight of vision, beyond my hand of protection, and that scares me which is why I'm grateful for Psalm 127. For in these two little lines, God graciously reminds me that their security does not reside within my limited line of vision. In fact, it never did. Their security rests with him, the watchman of their souls, and nothing slips past his gaze. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are drowning in the sea of what-ifs. What if this What if that? What if they? What if then? You desire certainty. You desire control. And you're terrified because those two things are always out of reach. Psalm 127 is such a gift to feeble and frail people like us because it empowers us to embrace the fact that we're not in control by entrusting ourselves to the one who is. In this psalm, we see a God whose sovereign hand reaches into all areas of our lives. In his sovereignty, he gives us success. In our sovereignty, he gives us security. And next, we see in his sovereignty, he gives us sleep. He gives us sleep. Verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, at a first glance, it is possible to get the impression here that Solomon is discouraging hard work and somewhat promoting passivity, right? It's in vain that you get up early and go to bed and, and, and uh, go late to rest. And in light of God's absolute control, it's possible to see our role as predominantly passive. We're mere pawns in God's predetermined game with nothing to do but wait to be moved about the board. But I think that is a misinterpretation of what Solomon's point is here. For while God is the sovereign author and the builder and the watcher, that never erases our responsibilities. These verses are not condemning early risers and hard workers. The builders still got to build, and the watchers still got to watch. Instead, I think the concern is that our responsibility in relationship to God's sovereignty can quickly become warped. And a visual that I use frequently in personal discipleship to navigate this issue is a chart called Clarifying Responsibility. It comes from Paul Tripp's fantastic book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. This circle, if you could imagine with me, represents our lives. Every relationship, every circumstance, every event resides within this circle of life, if you will. And all of it, as we've already learned, falls within God's sovereign control. But within this circle is a smaller one. This circle encompasses all the things that God has called you to be and to do as a parent, as a Christian, as a spouse, as a child, as a student, as an employee. 
These are your responsibilities. And within this circle, your call is simply obey. Obey. Love your wife. Complete your assignment. Provide for your children. Follow Jesus. But notice, outside of this circle is an outer ring. And this represents the things that concern you but are beyond your ability to control. A boss's integrity, a parent's divorce, a child's salvation, a spouse's affection. In this circle, the call is to trust. So there it is. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. But the problem is that these circles tend to become distorted. One way that this happens is we shrink the inner circle and put everything in the trust God category merely as an excuse for laziness, right? Hey, Junior, did you study for your science test? No, it's in the Lord's hands, (laughs) right? And And the Bible has a lot to say about that kind of response. In the Proverbs, they're often referred to as sluggard or sloth. Proverbs 21:25 says the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Best one is Proverbs 26:14 and 15. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. So we recognize the imbalance here that comes when the circle shrinks. But I think in this psalm this morning, the danger that Solomon addresses is an imbalance in the opposite direction. When we expand that inner circle and try to do what only God can do, we try to control what only God can control. We strive to direct, to manipulate, to influence things that are beyond our reach. This is what Solomon calls, in verse 2, eating the bread of anxious toil. And I believe that this distortion is in many ways even more dangerous than the other one. And the reason is this, because it often comes cloaked in respectable garments, right? I mean, let's be honest, sloth guy, there's not much respectable. He's rolling out of bed at the crack of noon and padding around in his Cheeto-stained footy pajamas and too tired, too lazy to do anything, but, but, but... But anxious toil guy, I mean, he's an inspiration, right? He's up before everyone else, first one to work, last one to leave, closing all the rings on his Apple Watch. In every decision, in every project, incredible resume, impeccable work ethic. But underneath these respectable garments, is a languishing soul that is crushed beneath the weight of anxious toil. What about you? Any anxious toil guys here this morning? I think theologically most of us would affirm Solomon's opening line, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But I wonder if practically, somewhere between reading it and believing it, that line gets inverted. And we live as though unless we build the house, it's the Lord who labors in vain. Is your perspective out of balance here? And if it is, how would you know? Well, I think one tell, a big tell, is the condition of our prayer life, right? 
If I'm convinced that it's all up to me to build the house and to guard the city, then my prayers are at best unnecessary and at worst a waste of time. I've got a house to build. I've got a city to guard. I don't have time to pray. See, there's an inverse relationship between our prayer and our perception of our control. The greater our perception of our control, the lesser we are going to feel the need for prayer. But I think there's another tell, another possible sign that we've lost sight of God's control, and it surfaces in this text, in our sleep. Now, now, I acknowledge that there are all kinds of physiological reasons for our inability to sleep. So I am not saying that your sleep deficiency is necessarily a refusal to acknowledge God's sovereign control, but I am saying that it could be. There's something about sleep that, that some find difficult to accept. It stands as an undeniable and unavoidable witness to our finitude, to our vulnerability and our limitations. For when we sleep, we surrender any sense of control. Have you ever heard someone say, I'll rest when I'm dead? Well, that mentality could be a sign of a strong work ethic or it may be a sign of a weak trust ethic. And I get it. Sometimes our bodies want to sleep, but our minds refuse to rest. I don't know what it is about night, but in my experience, some of my most anxious moments are when I'm lying in bed. Something about the night makes everything just seem more urgent. And it's in those seasons that one strategy that I personally have found helpful for me to help me fall asleep during those sleepless nights is to listen to Scripture. The app that I use is called the Dwell app. And I like it because uh, you can select the translation, you can select the text, and you can even select the background music. So if you like acoustic guitar, if you like cello, if you like piano, whatever. And you can also pick the reader, too. I personally like David because his voice is, quote, warm, sophisticated, and British. <laughs> but for me, this is just one tangible way that God has given me sleep. And you know, God's control, it's not just cold and impersonal. Because you see here that he gives his beloved sleep. You see that there is this relationship there. It's not just this, this careless, heartless plan. But to those he gives sleep are those whom he loves. And you know, as, as seasoned sermon listeners... We are trained to look for the application, that take-home truth, right? That thing that God is telling us to do from this Sunday's text. But I think that for those of us here who are absolutely exhausted from eating the soul-starving food of anxious toil, the application of this text is not to do, to stop all the doing, and to rest in the sovereign hand of God. Psalm 121 says, Our keeper neither slumbers nor sleeps. And that's why we can. Because God never does. God is in control. Sovereign hand gives us success, security, and sleep. But finally, we learn that his hand reaches down to even the most intimate and personal of spheres. In verses 3 through 5, we learn that in his sovereignty, God gives us sons and daughters. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, 
the fruit of the womb a reward. Can I acknowledge that there are many for whom this psalm is incredibly painful? There are dear brothers and sisters whose personal journey through infertility can make texts like these cut like a knife to the heart. This psalm in particular, it raises troubling questions, like if the fruit of the womb is God's reward, does that mean that a barren womb is God's punishment? So please hear me say this. Infertility is not God's punishment for something bad you've done or some deficiency he sees in you. Just as fertility is not God's reward for something honorable you've done or some potential he sees in you. In fact, the terms describing children as a heritage and a reward are covenantal terms that must be seen within the Israelite context of God's promise to their father Abraham. Long before Israel was a nation, back in Genesis 12 and 15, God promised Abraham a land to possess and an offspring to possess it. In Genesis 15, he assures Abraham that his reward, that's our word, will be very great. Then he describes that reward by telling him to lift his eyes to the night skies, number the stars, so shall your offspring be. And then once we get to Joshua, where Israel finally makes it to the promised land, the author frequently refers to that land as their heritage or their possession. These are the same words that Solomon is using here to describe Israel's children in Psalm 127. Why? Because their children are those offspring God promised to Abraham. And so beneath the shadow of God's covenant with Abraham, children as a heritage and a reward are not God's prize for outstanding behavior or for parental potential. Rather, they are the payment from God who's making good on his promise to Abraham. See, in the Old Testament, Israel's era, their hope and promise was tethered to the land. And as such, it was crucial that the family line continued in that land. This is the reason, by the way, for provisions as, uh, for, for certain provisions as drastic as the leveret marriage, where a man is expected to marry his brother's widow and produce for him an heir if his brother dies without a son, because continuing the family name was paramount. So it's within this context that fertility in the Old Testament is consistently depicted as a blessing and infertility occurs. But now with the coming of Christ and the birth of the church, the center of gravity shifts from biological family to spiritual family, with spiritual sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, making up the household of God. Here the family of God is no longer connected biologically, but spiritually, not through our blood, but through the blood of Christ. And I know this lengthy explanation does not ease the pain of infertility. But I do pray that it helps to remedy any persistent feelings of guilt that you may carry because of it. If you're in Christ, then you are God's beloved. You are not cursed. You are blessed. But as we continue, what are we to make of these weapon and battle comparisons in verses 4 and 5? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
If this metaphor seems foreign, well, it's because it is. In Solomon's historical context, sons were vital to one's standing, stability, and social security. Which, by the way, um, children in Hebrew is technically the word sons. Which, you know, as like, is a, is a little boy, you're quick to say, oh, it's, it's actually sons are a blessing, not daughters. But the point is not that daughters aren't a blessing. The point is instead that it is through sons that the line continues. And it is through sons that the family is protected. Because in that day, children were the workers of the farm. Children were the social security in retirement. Children even were the ones who would protect their vulnerable parents from anyone who would seek to oppress or abuse. That's why you talk about this at the gate, they won't be put to shame. The gate is where there were uh, d- different le- legislation was passed and different litigations were passed. And so I guess to have a posse of sons there to protect you uh, was something favorable to have. And I just say all that to say that there are a lot of details in these metaphors that are unique to the historical and covenantal context. However, that doesn't mean that there's no enduring application today. And so I would just like to draw two general principles from this second half of the psalm. And that is this. First, children are a blessing. This is a posture of Scripture from start to start to finish. The Bible is consistently pro-child. In Canaan, when child sacrifice was practiced, God's law squarely condemned it. Not only that, the Mosaic law provided explicit provisions and protections for children both outside and inside the womb. And the New Testament adopts the same conviction. In a society that devalued and diminished children, Jesus cherished and embraced them, saying, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Children are a blessing. And in a society that is increasingly anti-child, This truth must be shouted from the rooftops. But it also must be practiced at home. Do we, by our walk, and not just our talk, view our children as a blessing? I'd ask myself this question. If if someone were to ask my kids how their parents perceive them, what would they say? Don't ask them, by the way. Would they say, I see them as an annoyance, as an irritation, as a bother? The Bible is consistently pro-child. So where in our words, our actions, and decisions do we contradict that position? Are they a blessing or a burden? But second, we see this. Children are from the Lord. I don't know if you agree, but when, when I would read this psalm, It always felt like the second half had absolutely nothing to do with the first half. It almost seemed like this hard shift where it should be kind of its own psalm. I never understood the connection between guarding the city, building the house, getting sleep, and having kids. But I think the thread that connects both parts is summarized in those three little words, from the Lord. The sovereignty of God is the theme that connects the first and the second half. For success is from the Lord. 
security from the Lord. Sleep, sons, all of it from start to finish is from the Lord. And so the theme that we leave with from this psalm is that our lives are out of our control. But they're never out of His. And so we can rest in the sovereign hand of God. Will you pray with me? God, we acknowledge a world that is filled with uncertainties and unknowns, surprises, and fears, and evils, and dangers. And so often we can become overwhelmed when we realize how little we can control. And so I pray in those seasons when we see our lack of control, when we recognize that our lives, our children's lives, are out of our control, may we not run away, but may we run to you to rest in your sovereign care. In Jesus' name, amen.